Thank you, Amelia. Good morning, everyone. Special good morning to those joining us from near and far online, and welcome to those worshiping here in person. If you're a guest of ours today, and it feels like, wow, there's a lot of different things being mentioned is going on, you should know this is our annual launch week for the fall. So there is go a lot going on at this moment. Our adult education classes started this morning at 9.15. Our life groups are starting this week. Project Share is on our radar. You maybe have started hearing about that. It's a new sermon series. Don't be overwhelmed. Say hi to myself, to any one of us afterwards, and we would love to. We'd be glad to introduce you to family life here at North Sub, wherever you are in your journey and however long you plan to be with us or if you're just checking us out. Join me in prayer. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. I like instant. What about you? I like technology that makes things more instant for me. Here's some examples I was realizing even as I just reflected on this past week for me. Uh, with the aid of the double speed setting on my phone, I listened to a 138-page book and two hours of podcasts in the time that it took me to do dishes and mow the lawn this week. And that includes stopping to capture a couple notes on my phone along the way. Second, with the aid of Siri this week, I responded to three emails while driving across the street to the cleaners and back. Just spoke it and it happened. With the aid of a mobile app, I ordered food while at the back of the drive through line so that I'd save 30 seconds of ordering time when I got to the front of the line. Uh, I like instant. I want things to be instant, and apparently there are tech companies working really hard to provide me with new ways for me to get what I want more instantly. Now, when we're talking about fast food and emails, that's one thing. What happens when we apply that instant approach to the journey of following Jesus? Like when we attend conference after conference, hoping to recapture an instant spiritual high that we got at a conference once before. Then we get increasingly frustrated that that mountaintop experience just continues to evade us. Or when we buy book after book, promising a higher plane of spiritual experience, in three easy steps or 30 days to sinless perfection. When one book doesn't work, we try another. Or when we start watching church from home, not because we're sick or out of town, but because the video is where I can get the content most instantaneously. And then, you know, we start fast forwarding the YouTube video to the sermon and just watching the sermon and on double speed to get our weekly Jesus fix in just 15 minutes. What happens then? What happens when we expect instant results as followers of Jesus. There's a degree to which Jesus' disciples expected spiritual results much more instantaneously than Jesus intended to produce those results in them. Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 8 if you haven't already? Mark chapter 8. We're going to spend now until Thanksgiving studying this one particular section of Mark's gospel in which a central theme is the spiritual blindness of Jesus' disciples. Spiritual blindness. They've been spending all day, every day with Jesus. But they still can't see him clearly quite yet. And they can't see clearly enough to see that they can't see clearly. 
Because they can't see Jesus clearly, they can't see clearly what it means to follow Jesus, to be like him. And so Jesus, in these couple of chapters, slowly, patiently teaches them what following him is all about. Shows them what he's all about. The section spans from chapter 8, verse 22, to chapter 10, verse 52. It's an enclosed unit bookended by stories of Jesus healing two blind people. No coincidence because just a few verses earlier, in chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, Jesus just got done telling his disciples, you guys have eyes, but you still can't see. Part of what they can't yet see is the way. That's what we've entitled this series. The way, the way to follow Jesus, the way he has called them to walk, the way that leads to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to meet with an instrument of suffering and death. In these couple of chapters, Jesus lays out the way for these dearly loved disciples of his who just haven't been able to see it quite yet. But their blindness isn't something that Jesus wants to fix instantaneously. And so as you heard moments ago in our opening scripture text of this series, Jesus engages in an unusual encounter with a man who's physically blind, perhaps in part to show his disciples something about how they can expect their own spiritual blindness to be healed. The action in this story unfolds in three parts. The main event here is the healing, verses 23 to 25. That's the central portion. But first the scene is set, and at the end, Jesus dismisses the healed man. So scene, healing, dismissal. Let's look first at the scene. Follow along with me as I reread verses 22 and the first part of verse 23. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. This is the Bethsaida where Jesus got at least three of his 12 disciples, Peter, Andrew, and Philip, and probably also James and John. It's fundamentally a backwater fishing village, though it is growing at the time of the events of Mark 8, but it's clear that this hometown of possibly five of the 12 disciples, there's significant belief here in Jesus' ability to heal. They've heard the stories, and so in verse 22, the people of Bethsaida look at each other and say, hey, We've heard from Peter and Andrew and Philip what Jesus can do. We've got this friend here who is blind. Why would we not bring this friend to Jesus? What are we waiting for? I I do wonder, though, about these people who brought their friend to Jesus. Like, was there any part of them that doubted what might happen? Was there any kind of worry that this might not work, that Jesus might let them down? Here's, Here's what I might be concerned about in their shoes. What if Jesus is overhyped and we got our blind friend's hopes up for nothing? I've overhyped things before. What about you? You ever overhyped something? Uh, last year, I visited my best friend of 20 years. When you've been, with best, been best friends with someone for 20 years, you think you know each other pretty well. So I was pretty excited to introduce him and his wife to a particular TV show that I think is extremely well done and thought-provoking. Uh, so we sit down, we watch an episode, credits roll. I'm like, what do you, you guys think? Not only did my friend not appreciate this show, not only did he think I overhyped it, he actively disliked the show so much that a year later he still texts me about it sometimes 
uh, Sarah is on the group text with his wife too. I can't believe you've made me watch that show. His favorite thing to say about it is, I'm still upset that I'll never get that hour of my life back. <laughs> and he and I laugh about that, but honestly, since then, I'm a little bit rattled. Uh, like, I feel self-conscious now when I'm about to recommend a show or a book or a movie to anybody. Like, what if I'm overhyping this? Good news. You and I can never overhype Jesus. It's impossible. It was true for these people who brought this blind man to Jesus. It's true for everybody else in the Gospels who brings somebody to Jesus. Nobody who brings somebody to Jesus is ever let down by him. It's impossible to overhype Jesus. Jesus always knows exactly the best thing to do. So he takes this blind man by the hand, verse 23, and leads him out of the village where the two of them will be out of the public eye. Not the first time Jesus does that. In Mark's gospel, Jesus seems to be in the habit of taking his disciples aside to teach them privately. Back in chapter 7, he also takes aside a man who is deaf and had a speech impediment. Now, Jesus takes this blind man out privately. Why? Part of the answer to that probably is, has to be Jesus didn't come to build a brand. He's not putting on a show to entertain the masses and become known as the miraculous healer guy. Jesus takes the hand of this blind man, not as a chess player picking up a pawn to strategically use in a match, but as a friend or a brother, communicating dignity and worth through physical touch. In light of Jesus' tender concern for this man, it's worth reiterating, if you and I bring a friend to Jesus, we will never be disappointed. I wonder who's the friend that God is bringing to your mind right now. Who's the name that popped into your mind as we're talking about this? I want you to do this. Think a mo take a moment to reflect and then just silently whisper to God the name of your friend who needs to meet Jesus. Let's do that right now. I'll give you a moment. Who's your friend that needs to meet Jesus? Question. That person you just named have you brought that person to Jesus yet and begged him to touch them? That's the scene, now the healing. Second portion, the meat of the passage, verse 23 to 25. Follow along as I reread, starting halfway through verse 23. When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. To be clear, Jesus can heal blind people instantaneously. Two chapters from now, that's exactly what he's going to do, no problem. Yet, in this one instance, it's a two-stage healing. Why? To answer that question, I think we have to zoom out and remember the purpose that this individual story serves in the bigger story that Mark is telling in the course of his whole gospel. Um, in Mark's gospel, this is a story about spiritual blindness before it's a story about physical blindness. Where am I getting that? Well, back up with me a few verses. Just scan your eyes back to verses 17 and 18. In the story right before this one, Jesus laments his disciples' lack of understanding. 
They've been with him for some time now, but they still don't get it. So verse 17, do you not yet perceive or understand? And then verse 18, having eyes, do you not see? That's what Jesus says to his disciples. So according to Jesus, there's a seeing that we do with these eyes, and there's a seeing that we do with spiritual eyes by which we understand the things of God. And by placing this story where he does right after verses 17 and 18, Mark is signaling to us, don't just read this as a story about physical blindness and sight. Mark is hinting, look for a lesson here about spiritual blindness and sight. And here's what I think the lesson is that Jesus' disciples, I think, would only be able to look back on and realize in hindsight years later. Through this two-stage healing, Jesus wants to illustrate that for his disciples, receiving spiritual sight will not be a singular instant, but a multi-step journey. For his disciples, receiving spiritual sight will not be a singular instant, but a multi-step journey. Here's the first step for this blind man, verses 23 and 24. He took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. It's like this man can make out the shapes now, but it's not really clear. Then comes the second step, verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Notice the three-part repetition there, emphasizing how this is now perfect sight. Opened eyes, sight restored, saw everything clearly. This isn't a picture of a Jesus who's out of control or who's scrambling for plan B, who failed the first time and needed to try a different tactic. This wasn't an especially hard case for Jesus, as if that's a thing. He does this in two stages intentionally. It's the only time he does this. And we've now seen how the arrangement of Mark's gospel hints at why. Jesus' disciples still are not seeing clearly. Are they seeing better than the crowds? Sure. Right? Back in chapter 4, Jesus was already contrasting his disciples with the crowds. He says to them, you've been given the secrets of the kingdom, while they, the crowds, remain blind. Next week, in the verses immediately following this one, we're going to see Peter articulate the clearest vision of Jesus that anyone has ever had so far in Mark's gospel. But then immediately, even in that story, it's going to be clear that even in Peter's moment of unprecedented clarity, both he and the rest of the disciples are still really only seeing a foggy picture. Like someone watching people who look like trees walking around. That's the degree to which they see spiritually. Now, there are some differences between the 12 and us. They didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside them at this point. And there's a sense in which when Jesus rises from the dead and they receive the Holy Spirit after this, that will be the second decisive stage for them in which their eyes will be opened, their sight will be restored, and they will see everything clearly in a real sense. You and I, on the other hand, we already have the Holy Spirit living inside of us if we belong to Christ. We have the scriptures attesting to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the turning point of history that makes sense of all that came before it and all that has come since, including our own stories. So there is an important sense in which you and I have already had the blessing of the sort of clarity of sight that these disciples didn't yet have access to in Mark 8. But there's another sense in which it's important to acknowledge that even with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, 
even with study Bibles and a wealth of theological resources at our fingertips, we don't see as clearly now as we one day will. Each of us has a set of ideas about Jesus, and each of us is off in some ways. As a result, each of our understandings about what it means to follow Jesus is also off in some ways. He doesn't flip a switch when we get saved and give us perfect sight in every way. Our growth in becoming like him is often slower than the microwave instantaneous event that we sometimes wish it was. It's a process. As he was showing his disciples, it would be a process for them. So where are you on your journey? Can you locate yourself in this story? Some here may feel pretty much blind, pretty much totally blind to who this Jesus guy is and what it would even mean to follow him. Others here are maybe nearing the end of their journeys on this earth. You're yearning for that perfect sight, and maybe you're rejoicing that you're seeing Jesus more clearly now than you ever have before. Praise God for that. Most of us, probably, experience some measure of what this blind man experienced during the intermediate stage between the first and second touches of Jesus. Like I can see to some extent way better than I used to be able to see. I used to have no idea about Jesus. Now I've got some idea about what it means to walk in the way that he walked. But if I'm honest, there's plenty that still confuses me. And I find myself still often kind of fumbling around. If that's you, don't lose heart. Jesus healed this man in this way. And the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to include this story at his, this point in his gospel so that you and I would be reminded that he often intends to do a slow work in us by stages over time. If your spiritual vision hasn't been perfected overnight, you're not a failure, in other words. You're a work in progress. There's a brief, brief conclusion to this story that only uh, needs a quick mention. Dismissal, verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 26. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Mark's gospel, not just in this passage, but throughout, emphasizes what scholars call this messianic secret. Messianic secret in which Jesus frequently tries to keep people quiet about it after he does a miracle. His reason for doing so becomes pretty evident as he nears Jerusalem in the following chapters. Namely, people aren't ready for who he really is. They have ideas about what Messiah will be. Maybe this political revolutionary who will stand up to Rome or a miracle worker who will snap his fingers and fulfill all their dreams. Jesus has different plans. He wants to define his messiahship on his own terms and on his own timing. So he tells this man, hey, don't even enter the village. Here's the thing, though. In the year 2021, the secret's out. It's not a secret anymore. The mystery's solved. We know that Jesus is Messiah, and we know what sort of Messiah he is, because he's told us so. So Jesus isn't speaking to you and me through this scripture this morning, saying, you've encountered me in the pages of scripture today, but do me a favor and keep it hush-hush. Just the opposite. After he rose from the dead and before he ascended into heaven, he said, go tell everybody you can. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey what I have commanded you. So the command to the blind man not to enter the village has been flipped. 
who is somebody that you need to tell about the Messiah? He was supposed to keep quiet, don't go into the village. You and I are supposed to go into the village and tell. Who's somebody that you need to tell about the Messiah? Next week's service and sermon from Dr. Lau will be a great chance for someone that you know and love to hear a crystal clear telling of what kind of Messiah Jesus is and what kind of Messiah Jesus isn't. You may want to invite somebody or, or send a link to that. But friends, when you do, and when I do invite someone, bring them to Jesus as these people did for this blind man, the chances are that their sight won't be completely restored instantaneously. But that's not a surprise, right? Because how many of us had an experience of complete and instantaneous healing when we came to Jesus in the first place? So our big idea today is this. May we not be discouraged when Jesus doesn't perfectly restore our vision instantaneously. Speaking of spiritual vision there. May we not be discouraged when Jesus doesn't perfectly restore our vision instantaneously. It doesn't always happen like that. I want instant as much as you do. And I get impatient that I'm not further along in my journey with Jesus to become more like him, that I don't see more clearly, that I keep making the same boneheaded mistakes. Sometimes I find myself enticed by promises of a magic bullet, so to speak, on my journey of discipleship, either you know, maybe the guru, teacher, preacher, pastor, who has access to the hidden secrets of the Bible that no one else knows, or the conference that offers a sure spiritual high. But when the conference ends up just being average, and the guru ends up making news for a major moral failing, I'm back at square one, where I find Jesus offering not a quick fix, but as Eugene Peterson titled his book that we referenced often this summer, we find instead a long obedience in the same direction. Jesus is slowly working in me to help me see more and more clearly. Friends, it's not that there isn't a quick fix. There is. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. There is a quick fix coming. It's just that the rest of that verse tells us when that quick fix is coming, not till the final trumpet. There's no magic formula for instant transformation before then. Rather, it's a slow walk along the way. With many days when it feels like all we can make out is shapes and outlines, if that's where you are this morning, that's right where Jesus wants to meet you with his second touch. He may want to, I'll say he even probably wants to use our church family to do that in you, in your life this fall. So before I wrap up in prayer, let me just make sure that everyone's up to speed on the challenge we've issued to our entire church family for these next three months. Our, our church-wide emphasis this fall is discipleship growing as followers of Jesus who are becoming more and more like him. We've spent the better part of five years putting together a plan for how North Suburban Church is going to help people become more like Jesus. And now you've received that plan in your email inbox. Our 915 class in the gym is walking the church through that plan. We kicked that off this morning. In a nutshell, there are four opportunities available to you at North Suburban Church to get discipled which means to enter into a relationship in which somebody helps you grow to be more like Jesus. Here's they are. We've got Sunday services right where you are right now. It's like Jesus' teaching of the crowds 
so to speak. Everyone should prioritize attendance at Sunday morning service. It's, there's growth that happens while we sit under God's word being read and sung and preached. But then we have life courses, we call them. These adult education classes at 9.15 on Sunday mornings in the gym. These are modeled after Jesus' teaching of the 72. Sometimes there's this well-defined group of 72 that Jesus would teach in a way that's a little more intimate than he taught the crowds. Um, but some interaction, heavy on teaching, though. You'll grow in those classes if you come join us in the gym at 9.15 hour. We had a great one this morning. Life groups, then, have been a backbone of North Sub for some time. These are groups of 6 to 16 that meet some in the church, some off-site, modeled after Jesus' discipling of the 12. There's a lot more interaction in these groups than in either of the first two vehicles of discipleship. In these groups, we get into how God's word applies to my life when the rubber meets the road. These groups are launching now, and there's one for you if you want to be in one. And finally, growth groups. These are new for our church. Two to five members, inclusive of the leader, uh, modeled after Jesus' discipling of this inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. He, we see five times in the Gospels, he pulls them aside from the rest of the twelve and lets them in, pulls, them, pulls aside the curtain to show them things that he didn't show the rest of the 12. And so our growth groups are the places where there's the most intimate sharing of life out of all of our discipleship vehicles. So here's the challenge this fall. We're challenging everyone who is part of our church family, regular attender or member, pick two of these. You can do more if you can do more. That's awesome. But pick two. So you're coming to Sunday service, check. You got one. Do something else throughout the week. One of these other three ways of getting disciples, growing in your faith, becoming more like Jesus. Let's not think that we're going to gain clearer spiritual vision because we show up for an hour on Sunday mornings. While the world is working hard to disciple us in something totally different for the other 167 hours a week. You received on the way in today this uh, QR code right here. This one was just handed to you on the way in. Um, along with a bookmark of our 11 marks of a disciple to characterize a follower of Jesus. 54 of you have already filled out this form. Thank you for doing so. This is the Fall 21 Challenge in which we are pairing people who uh, want to grow with people who want to help others grow in these 11 traits laid out on the bookmark. We want everybody to fill this out. So if you're an elder, if you're a staff member, if you're a life group leader, this is for everybody to fill out. If you're the person who's new to the area, has only visited three times, we'd love for you to fill it out for us. You may answer every question, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. That helps us because in a church our size, one thing that we can do that we love to do at this time of year is we'll call you and we'll email you, not in a, not in a pressury way at all, but just to help you make a plan for how you are going to grow in your faith this fall. And so in the next two weeks, we're going, somebody from the church will be reaching out to you to say, hey, what's your plan? Hey, how can we help you? How can we come alongside you as a church? as you grow to become more like Jesus this fall? Is there a life course that we can uh, interest you in? Is there a life group, a growth group that we can place you in? We want to take, uh, uh, we want to take the time to personally come alongside you and do that. The form helps us do that, and those are due today. So if you haven't yet done it, you can complete it before you leave here. If you just hover your phone's camera over that QR code, a link will pop up, you can click it, or if you'd rather do it at home, uh, do it as soon as you get home. Click on the link that we've been sending out in the emails or on our website. This fall, friends, can be a step in your journey toward clearer sight spiritually. And we want to come alongside you to help you find that. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation that's ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you didn't send your son to just be a great moral teacher or a political revolutionary, but you sent him to die in our place, to pay the price that we deserve to pay for our sin and to bring us into relationship with you. We want to go deeper in relationship with you. We want to see you more clearly at the end of this fall than we do right now. Please give us guidance as to how to go about seeking clearer vision and use us as a church family to come alongside each other and help each other grow in intentional ways. In Jesus' name, amen.